beneficiaries of it several years ago, so it's a huge blessing. It's good to be here this morning, beneficiaries of it several years ago, so it's a huge blessing. It's good to be here this morning uh, to Acts chapter 8, and we will uh, start there in just a few minutes on Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40. First, I'd like to uh, tell you a little bit of a story that kind of sets this up. It was January of 1991, and a University of Georgia student named Eric DeWitt had a divine opportunity that he decided to accept. Uh, That divine opportunity at a bus stop at University of Georgia was an interesting one, to say the least. He approached this uh, young man who was kind of haggard-looking, uh, this guy had a mullet that you would not believe. How many people in here know what a mullet is? If not, you need to tell the kids sitting next to you what a mullet is. He had a, a mullet that you would not believe, perm in the back, party on the top. Uh, I think that, No, business on the top, party in the back. That's it. The, if you don't know what a mullet is, look back at Sam Williams. He's back here in the corner. Um, oh, he, he cut it. He cut it. Sorry. He had this mullet, he had a a big gold hoop earring, a black leather Harley jacket, and he was chain-smoking camel cigarettes when Eric approached him. So you can imagine there was a little bit of fear and trepidation on the part of Eric. But Eric obeyed the prompting of the Spirit. He was Spirit-led, he was Spirit-empowered, and he engaged that young man in a conversation. And I stand before you today grateful that he did, because I was that man. Um, January of 1991, uh, Eric uh, shared the gospel with me. I can tell you right now it didn't go well initially. I used a few choice words with him. He walked away probably thinking that he had failed. But in fact, the Lord used that. And over the next week and a half to two weeks, I was convicted, um, encountered other people, had more gospel conversations, and turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And my life has never been the same. I'm, I'm grateful for guys like Eric. And that's one of the reasons why I want to talk to you this morning about divine appointments and gospel conversations. I believe that uh, every person in here, this is applicable. What about you? How is it that you heard the gospel for the first time? Many of you, more than likely, it was your parents being faithful to share the gospel with you. But some of you, like me, uh, didn't grow up in an overtly Christian home. And so as a result of that, it took someone else coming along to share that message of hope with you. This message is for all of us. But some gospel encounters just simply can't be planned, uh, at least by us. But that doesn't mean, however, that God has not planned them for us. I believe that the reason that each one of you are here this morning, some people are here and um, you're going to hear this message and you're maybe on the outside looking in and what is really hopefully going to strike you is the, the core message of the gospel itself. But for those of you who have embraced Christ and you're following Christ and you're a member at North Wake perhaps, uh, hopefully this message this morning will challenge you to be faithful and recognize those divine appointments when they present themselves, that God would give you the boldness through His Spirit to seize those. Because the bottom line is this, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your following is going to lead to fishing. Jesus said that to his very first disciples, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, professional fishermen may have the skills and the know-how to put themselves on the fish, but they simply cannot make a fish bite and take the bait, right? The reality is that um, if the fish are hungry and you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you may find yourself, even as a novice, finding a keeper. Check out the picture on the screen I came across this past week. This was caught two weeks ago. How many people in here go to Lake Gaston? Um, if you've been to Lake Gaston, this 117-pound catfish was caught by a 15-year-old named Landon Evans at Lake Gaston two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, he was in the right place at the right time. There was no strategy. He dropped the hook into the water, and this monster, this behemoth, came along, and he landed a keeper, no doubt. That's precisely what I think 
uh, you're going to see happens today in the passage that we'll be going through in Acts chapter 8. Philip was a relatively ordinary man. He was not one of the original uh, apostles of Jesus. He was a servant of the church. And yet he, as a servant of the church, was faithful at communicating the message that he himself had received. In fact, the, the preface of the text this morning in Acts chapter 8, he was in a city where he was seeing a lot of people respond to Christ and yet he was sensitive to the Spirit of God, left that place, and went to engage one man in the desert. So turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We'll read verses 25 through 40, and then we'll begin. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That's referring to the apostles who had come out to check out what God was doing in and through Philip's ministry. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what it is that you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See... Here is water. What prevents me or prohibits me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you for your kindness to us this morning and revealing yourself to us through your word and through your son. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be very near to us this morning and that you would empower us, Lord, to not only be hearers of the word but to be doers also pray, Father, for those who are here this morning who feel like they're on the outside looking in, that the message of the gospel would be clear, that they would understand that you love them deeply and personally, uh, and that you uh, sacrificed in order that they be reconciled to you. Now, pray for those of us who are members at North Wake, that we would be faithful fishermen, recognizing that even in the desert, uh, at the right time when you've ordained a divine appointment, If we're obedient and seize it, uh, there could be amazing things that come from that encounter. So guide us this morning, we pray, and uh, lend us your assistance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea of the text this morning is simply this. It's, It's on the screen. God is absolutely sovereign over the spread of the gospel through Christ followers who are led and empowered by the Spirit of God. God is absolutely sovereign over the spread of the gospel through Christ followers who are led and empowered by the Spirit of God. So several weeks ago, Noah led us in our uh, time. We were in the midst of this series called Devoted. And uh, the first part of the year, we talked about what it means to be devoted to God. And then the second part of the year, being devoted to one another within the church. And we've just turned a corner a few weeks ago talking about Uh, loving our neighbors, being devoted to loving our neighbors. So Noah spoke about three weeks ago, and he talked about uh, loving the church, loving one another as a witness to our community. 
And he emphasized in that message that there is to be within the church a unity in diversity. That we're supposed to be unified around the message of the gospel, though we, the church, are a diverse people. And then the following two weeks, these last two weeks, Pastor Larry led us and he talked about loving your neighbor by sharing with them the truth of hell first and then, and then heaven was last week. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to hear those messages, you should go back and listen to those because they set up kind of the why of what we're doing today. This is the what. What are we to say to people? What are we to believe personally? And then what are we to say to people? And those other messages stand as a backdrop. When you look in the story of the book of Acts, it really it unfolds. It's a narrative. It's a, a story that walks through. And there's a guy named Luke who was a traveling companion of Paul. And he took down notes of all the things that happened and the things that were passed along to him. And that's where we get uh, the, uh, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, you really see a table of contents or a a thesis statement for the book in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus, after his resurrection, had looked at his apostles and he says, don't do anything, just go and pray and wait for the Spirit to come to you and empower you. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we get this thesis statement, this table of contents where the scripture says, and the Spirit of God will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. So what we get there is the background for what's going to become and unfold in the book of Acts is the explosive growth of the church in the first century. And our text today brings us to a point where we're rounding a corner. The first several uh, chapters in the book of Acts focuses on what the apostles were doing as they proclaimed the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. And then around chapter 5 or 6, there's a transition as the gospel begins to go out into Judea and Samaria, even engaging Samaritans, which were a kind of a hybrid cross-cultural engagement with the gospel. But here today, there's a hard turn that's taking place through the, the obedience of Philip. Philip is going to engage a black man from Africa, and this is significant because this is where the gospel begins to move out from Jerusalem, as Jesus had promised, through the Holy Spirit to the very ends of the earth. In chapter 8, verse 26, we see that the Lord spoke to Philip. We don't know whether this was in a time of prayer or whether it was in a vision or a dream. We're not quite sure. But the reality is, as God communicated to Philip, that he needed to leave a place where there was tremendous responsiveness and go to a desert. It sounds like a really odd thing, right? That all of these people were responding to the gospel in repentance and faith, so much so that the apostles had come out from Jerusalem to confirm what was happening there. And they see this movement taking place, and yet the Holy Spirit of God prompts Philip to leave that place of responsiveness and go into a desert. And metaphorically speaking, the, the desert is really a great place to fish for followers. You may not think so because there's no water there, but think about it. Everyone in a desert is thirsty. Everyone. And so for those of us who have found living water in the midst of this world that is a spiritual desert, we can look to those who are hopeless and we can say to those who are walking through the desert, as Isaiah said, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink and be satisfied. And so Philip went. He responded immediately in obedience. And what we found there in verses 27 through 29 tells us that God had been preparing this African man, known only to us as the Ethiopian eunuch, to hear the gospel, and God had been preparing Philip to share the gospel with him. Now, a little bit of background. In this society that Philip lived in, Roman, Greek culture was kind of the backdrop. And Ethiopia was considered to be the very ends of the earth. So what had started in Jerusalem had indeed moved and progressed through Jerusalem, uh, Judea and Samaria, and now was about to go to the ends of the earth, bursting forth. This man that Philip encounters, the Ethiopian, had just undergone a 500-mile one-way it's a 500 miles each way uh, trip that took him about 50 plus days to make. And when we think about riding in a chariot, don't picture the, the movie chariots that are nice and kind of, you know, pulled by horses and everything. More than likely, this was a bumpy, 
hardened chariot that was pulled by oxen, not horses. It moves slowly uh, across really rugged, rugged terrain. And so the passage tells us that the Ethiopian had taken this chariot ride to Jerusalem and now he had finished his trip, he had finished what he had gone there for and was returning back to Ethiopia, about to undergo this 50 plus day trip uh, in the other direction. Now the text does tell us in Acts chapter 8 that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. But remember, um, Luke documents here for us what his title, what his position was in Ethiopia. He was... A, a member of the staff of the queen. He was the keeper of the treasury. This was a very important, very wealthy, influential man in Ethiopian society. And so more than likely what had happened is that um, there had been a diplomatic purpose behind the journey that led to his going in being inquisitive about Judaism and the God of Judaism. And so he was exploring on this diplomatic trip, but exploring uh, the possibility of belief in God. And so this man turns out for Philip to be similar to what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, a person of peace. You say, George, what's a person of peace? Well, uh, Jesus basically describes this situationally by uh, noting that it's a person who's open to spiritual conversations, they're welcoming. And oftentimes they'll use their influence in order to advance the gospel. And that's precisely what happens here with this eunuch. Now, when we think about persons of peace, you say, okay, well, back then, yeah, sure. What about here and now? The reality is there are more persons of peace here around us than we would give credit to be. In fact, I've got some friends that work for the North Carolina Baptist Convention through a, a project called People's Next Door. And they have statistics about the whole Triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. And of all the people who live in the Triangle, it's an increasingly diverse uh, place here. Of all the people who live here, over 70% of the people will not attend a religious service even if they're invited. So in some respects, one in four people now may come to church if you invite them to come to church. But the other three out of four people if they're going to hear the gospel, it's not going to be because they come and sit in chairs and listen to it proclaimed in a church service. It's going to be because we, the church, take the gospel out to them in the workplace, in the places where we do our leisure time and everything. And so that's a significant shift. Pastor Larry does a fantastic job week after week unfolding the gospel and showing how all the scriptures point to Jesus. But the reality is, is most of your neighbors, most of your coworkers aren't going to come. I'm not saying don't invite them. That's fine, invite them. But recognize that if they're going to hear the gospel, it's more than likely going to be because you take it to them. It reminds me of uh, something that happened just a couple of days ago. I, I've been on vacation this last week, and um, we went up to the lake uh, for the week, and I'm sitting on dock, and I'm having a conversation with neighbors who are on their dock. And in this conversation, this guy asked the question, right? So what do you do? Well, I'm a teacher, okay? Um, and he says, well, what do you teach? I said, well, I teach applied theology. I'm trying to kind of hide it, right? Because when you say, I'm an evangelism professor, uh, people tend to run the other direction. Um, so it's not exactly the easiest thing to have a conversation with people when they know that you teach people to share the gospel with people. And so this guy comes straight out and, and asked me, he and his wife are sitting there, and he says, so how in the world did you end up teaching at a Baptist seminary? And so that question led to dozens of other very, very engaging spiritual questions. This couple was very open, and they made no bones about it. They, they told me, we've been looking for answers. In light of the brokenness that exists in this world, we've got questions. We spent... This was a, a God-ordained, this was a divine appointment, right? And, and, and praise God for His Spirit um, to empower me, feeble as I am, to be able to communicate. But we spent four hours sitting there having this conversation where they asked questions like, what's the difference between Christ and Hare Krishna? Why should we trust the Bible? How did the Bible get put together? You know, what went wrong in the world? And they even asked the question. It was an excellent one. They asked the question, so 
I understand God sending his son, but it, it seems wrong to me that God would send his son to be punished for what other people did wrong. So over the course of four hours, I walked them through how God designed the world, how the, the world is broken now because of our sin, what hope there is in Jesus, and even into the future, what the, the future holds. And I'd love to say that my neighbors repented and trusted Christ there on the spot. They didn't. But when we finally went to bed that night, I got up the next morning, and early in the morning, I received a text from him, the husband. And in that text, he says, hey, I just want to let you know that we were really encouraged by our conversation last night, and I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future. My prayer is that this couple, they're a fantastic couple, with great questions. My prayer is that one day we'll be sitting on the dock and they'll look down and they'll say, hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized like the Ethiopian does in our passage today? So, God is absolutely sovereign over the spread of the gospel through Christ followers who are led and empowered by the Spirit of God. It, it had nothing to do with me planning me strategizing to have that conversation. It was a divine appointment, and I was prepared to communicate the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And that's really what I want to encourage our North Wake family with this morning. So the next slide says simply this. A gospel conversation begins where the person is in their circumstances and understanding and proceeds from there. Back in Acts chapter 8, we see here that the Ethiopian is a court official. Um, it's interesting that Philip, a Jew, encounters a black man in what proves to be this first divine appointment that's covered. Neither skin color nor ethnicity were obstacles to Philip's obedience, and those things shouldn't be obstacles to our obedience either. And I don't want to say this tritely because this past week has been a really trying time in our nation as our culture is undergoing a lot of changes and there's a lot of um, anxiety related to race relations here in the US and the fact is is both black and white people have lost their lives as a result of the tension but what we have to remember is is that this just simply points to the fact that we live in a world that's broken and without hope we live in a world that has, in many respects, been alienated from God by our sin and by our choices. The Apostle Paul reminds the, the church members in the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that not only were they reconciled to God for themselves, but they were reconciled in order to be given a ministry of reconciliation. Now, what it means to be reconciled primarily is to be reconciled to God. We were alienated from God by our sin. And when we're reconciled to God, when we're made right in our relationship with God, that also has horizontal effects in terms of our relationships with one another. And so if there's hope for our nation, it's not that we're going to become a politically Christian nation again. The hope is in the message of the gospel as God's people do their uh, uh, seize these opportunities, these divine appointments, and become ministers of reconciliation in a place that's broken. Even, even at this time this morning, one of our church plants in North Raleigh, a multi-ethnic church plant that we sent out from here several years ago, they're having a service this morning. They've got people from various ethnicities, but they have a, a small gathering of blacks that are members of Oaks Church. Right now, this morning, I spoke with Josh, the pastor there, yesterday. And he said this week has been really difficult. It's been really challenging as a pastor because he's having to navigate all of this and try to uh, provide hope as a backdrop for the tensions that exist in our nation right now. And so one of the things he told me that he's doing this morning is he is preaching a message of hope this morning. And he's talking about how hate entered the world from Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. But then as a part of his service, he's actually having several of the black members of their church come up and share testimonies in order for the white people who are sitting there to understand the background and the tension that they feel. In addition to that, he's also got a Raleigh police officer 
who's going to be speaking in that service because they work alongside the Raleigh PD in order to engage impoverished communities all over Raleigh and, and provide a means of hope there. And so we should be praying and we should be thankful that we get to be a part of that at least through sending a church. But that doesn't negate the fact that this has application here as well. You, North Wake, have a ministry of reconciliation. So, in our text this morning, this black man, this African from Ethiopia, is described as a eunuch. Now, this is the PG-13 part of the message for just a moment. What is a eunuch? A eunuch, simply put, is a person whose privates have been crushed. They've been castrated. They're incapable from that point forward of having children. And this sounds awful, but it was a pretty common practice back in these days, especially in the king's court. Whenever you would have royalty, servants, anyone who would be around the queen, anyone who would be around the daughters of the king or whatnot, they would voluntarily undergo uh, castration in order to make safe the home that no one would be making a move on the queen or on the princesses there in the household. And so this man, this Ethiopian, at some point had made a big decision, right? It was a high-paying job. It was a high-influence job. But he gave up a lot to get that. And I would imagine that there were many, many times that he felt shame and guilt and anxiety related to the decision that he had made long in the past in order to serve the queen. And what you're going to see here today is Philip engages him with the message of the gospel. That this man was searching for hope. In fact, it says that he had a scroll of Isaiah and that he had gone up to the temple to worship. Now he's on his way home with this scroll. Now the temple was central to the culture in Jerusalem. And so as he went up, he uh, was interested, intrigued or whatnot by the God of Israel. And he goes into the temple, but there's a limit to how far he can go. This man is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And so he's relegated to an area called the Court of the Gentiles. There was a wall with windows where you would stand on the outside looking in at the people who could go and approach the presence of God uh, deeper into the temple. And so that's physically and spiritually where he was. He was on the outside looking in. In addition, by, by virtue of the fact that he was a eunuch, he could not uh, convert to Judaism. So Gentiles were allowed to become proselytes. They could convert to Judaism, but they had to undergo circumcision in order to do that. Well, this man couldn't even voluntarily become a, part, a member of Judaism because of his, his castration. He was physically and spiritually cut off, and he was doubly cursed according to the religious leaders of Israel. So he's riding away from Israel, and something had gotten him. He had, he had gotten hold of a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. This is no small thing. Uh, the average Jew didn't own scrolls during those days. These are very expensive, very hard to come by because every copy is handwritten in those days, right? And so, uh, in fact, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they date back to about 300 years before Jesus. The largest intact portion of a scroll is from the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, almost the entire scroll of Isaiah exists. Uh, they, they say, archaeologists say, that when you unroll that scroll, that it's 24 feet long. So more than likely, he didn't have the entire scroll, but he had certainly more than just a couple of verses. He wasn't carrying a note card with a few verses from this scroll. He probably had a section that he was reading from when, the, when uh, Philip engaged him in this conversation. What we understand by this is that nothing is too costly. Nothing is beyond a person who's searching and a person who is hopeless. They'll do anything in order to find hope. And so Philip runs up to this chariot and the eunuch was more than willing to engage him in a spiritual conversation. Philip was observant. He asked, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And the Ethiopian searching for truth said, I need somebody to explain this thing to me. So Philip recognized that divine opportunity, and he seized it. On the next slide, you'll see, though, that a gospel conversation begins where the person is in their circumstances and then proceeds from there. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, the, the Scripture says that 
Philip started where he was and told him the good news, beginning with that portion and then moving forward, told him the good news about Jesus. Now, there couldn't have been a more relevant and perfect passage for this eunuch to have been reading. Isaiah chapter 53, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. But if you expand out in Isaiah 53, which I strongly encourage you to do later today, read the whole of Isaiah 53, you'll see all kinds of markers there that are pointing to hope in a Messiah that was to come during the time of Isaiah. You see uh, phrases like, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Well, this eunuch was certainly acquainted with grief. He had grief. The, the scripture says that he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This eunuch was looking for somebody to carry his sorrow. But then Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The, the idea or the concept of substitutionary atonement, that this Messiah is going to come and he will be punished for what others have done, emerges here. There's all kinds of beautiful, full gospel implications behind what he's reading. And it, the scripture says that Philip started there and began to explain to him how all of this pointed to Jesus. Now this sounds an awful lot like what we see in Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection, Jesus still had not appeared to all of the apostles. And so there were a couple of disciples that were walking on their way to Emmaus. Jesus hides his appearance from them, but he approaches them and has a conversation. And these people, these guys are disciples, but they were despairing. They thought Jesus was dead and that the whole mission was over. And then Jesus confronts them and he says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And it says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses, Jesus unfolded for him how all of the scriptures pointed to himself. That means beginning with Genesis 1, the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus walked him through the first part of the Old Testament, showing how all of that found its meaning and its purpose in him. And these men, their hearts began to burn within them with hope because now they understood how Christ had not only died, but he was risen and he was reigning. So in this passage where we're at today, the unit could identify with various aspects of it. Uh, one of the, the aspects that he identified with by virtue of being a eunuch is he couldn't have children. Think, you know, he sees a pretty girl come along and he can't, he can't ask her on a date to say. Uh, because he can't offer her children. In those days, he had nothing to offer her. And so he was basically relegated to, to being single and solitary. He had no opportunity for his family name to be carried on. And yet what we find here in the passage in Isaiah 53 is that the man of sorrows, Jesus, the rescuer who would come, would not have physical children, but he would have generations that would proceed after him, a heritage, a spiritual heritage that this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, was being invited into. So on the next slide, what you'll notice is that a gospel conversation begins where the person is in their circumstances and understanding, but proceeds by pointing them to hope that can only be found in Jesus. Now the reason I believe that that scroll that the Ethiopian uh, possessed was not just the verses we see in Acts chapter uh, 8, but actually proceeded forward from there, is because there are some really relevant passages that come following uh, Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, look at the passage that's on the screen now, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. This makes the gospel personal, and I believe that Philip probably took him here and explained to him how the gospel was relevant to him, a foreigner and a eunuch. In Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. He had just left the temple where he was separated, right? And now he's being told that as a foreigner, he doesn't have to stay on the outside looking in. And then it goes on to say, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. In other words, the, the eunuch shouldn't despair in the fact that he can't have physical children. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house, notice that, 
right? Not outside looking in. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be, and yes, you can read into this a little language play, shall not be cut off. This man is listening as Philip explains to him the gospel from Isaiah. And it's a personal message. It has application for him in that day and all the days that are to follow. And so, interestingly, in Isaiah 54, Israel is described as barren. The nation of Israel is described as being a barren woman who who is incapable of giving birth to children. And the Lord says, I'm going to come and I'm going to attach myself to you as your husband and then you'll bear children. And he's not talking about physical, he's talking about spiritual children. And Philip is one of those children. And as you're about to see, the Ethiopian eunuch is going to become one as well. So the translation here in Isaiah 56 is simply this, trust in God's provision of the lamb that was slaughtered on your behalf, and though you've been cut off from an earthly heritage, you will not be cut off from God, for he will give you a spiritual and heavenly heritage. Theologian N.T. Wright says this about this passage. He says, when you tell the story of Israel like that, with Jesus as its climax, it opens up to include everybody, including people like him. He was once doubly excluded, but now he's wonderfully welcomed. No wonder he wanted to share in the death and resurrection of this Jesus by being baptized, by having the whole story become his personal story. And then Wright goes on and he says, We should ponder too the fact that the first non-Jew to come to faith and baptism in Luke's great story is that of a black man from Africa. This has implications for us here today. The Ethiopian eunuch couldn't undo what he had done. He couldn't undo his castration. So he couldn't become a Jew. But what we find in this passage is the gospel is not about redos. It's about redemption. And so the Lord takes him in his brokenness, him in his incapability of reforming himself, and the Lord gives him hope and gives him a future. And Philip simply got to be the one who delivered that message of hope to him. And it's obvious by the passage that he did indeed surrender and put his faith in Jesus. So in the next slide, you'll note that a gospel conversation continues by calling for surrender and faith-fueled obedience to Jesus. A gospel conversation continues by calling for surrender and faith-fueled obedience. So how did, how did this guy know what it meant to be baptized? That's a great question, right? He's an Ethiopian. It's not, it's not like he had attended church services and seen baptisms before. And it's not like he was invited to a baptism at a, a person who was uh, proselytizing into Judaism. How did he understand baptism? And why did he look down at the water in the desert and say, Hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, I think the, the key is back in that scroll that he possessed. Look with me, if you will, to Isaiah 54, verse 9. In Isaiah 54, just a, little, a few verses after the passage that's quoted in Acts chapter 8, the scripture says this, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. And so, what we find here is that the, the flood in Noah's day is the second greatest display of the wrath of God in the history of the world. What's the first greatest display? What the flood pointed to. The display of God's wrath which would come down upon Jesus. Noah and his children, one of which, by the way, was a man named Ham. Ham, when the flood was over, they were rescued by grace, through faith. They trusted God and his provision with this ark and they obeyed him and they were delivered out from there. After they got off the boat, Ham eventually made his way into North Africa and is the father of all of the, the black Africans. And so even Ethiopia, if you look in the Old Testament, Ethiopia is a place called Cush, one of the descendants of Ham. And so this man, as he's listening 
to uh, Philip explain this, he's recognizing that my very ethnicity is by virtue of the grace of God delivering Noah and his children from the first flood. So it makes sense now why I would identify with Christ in his second flood, that he would go under the waters of the wrath of God when he was crucified on the cross, but that he would be raised up and delivered. And so this man said, what hinders me from being baptized? So we see that the gospel is very personal. It's very applied in this man's life. And on the next slide, I want you to notice that through Jesus, God redeems and restores broken sinners to himself. And then he empowers them to be ambassadors for the kingdom. So God takes broken wrecked lives and then he turns those lives into something meaningful by making you an ambassador for the kingdom it's interesting that Acts chapter 8 verse 39 says the eunuch went on his way rejoicing that's what the gospel does in fact one of my mantras is we communicate what we cherish we communicate what we cherish whatever it is that you love whatever it is that you cherish you're going to talk about and so church family Um, If you love Jesus, you should talk about him to people who need to hear, people who need hope. Who's that? That's me. I need to hear your story. I need to hear what God's doing in your life. But that's certainly your neighbors and your coworkers and people around the triangle and around the world. People need to have hope in Jesus. What happens here with this eunuch when he's baptized is that he had gone to Jerusalem probably as an ambassador from Ethiopia. Now he's returning from Jerusalem to Ethiopia as an ambassador of the king of kings. say, George, how do you know that? The text doesn't actually show that he goes back and he starts witnessing and telling people the gospel. Church history tells us that. In fact, one of the early church fathers, a man named Irenaeus, records and documents that as a result of this eunuch going back to Ethiopia and leveraging his influence, he spread the gospel and Christianity begins to began to spread through uh, the country of Ethiopia. So, through this divine appointment, God launches a movement of disciples being made at the very ends of the earth in a place called Ethiopia. So here are a few lessons that we can take away from today's passage. You should have been given a pen or a piece of paper on your way in. I, I would encourage you to jot these down. Um, and, and think through these and discuss these with people in your family or a small group. Here are a few lessons we can take away. First of all, be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit. Evangelism is not something that we do in our own strength. Uh, there was a, a guy named D.T. Niles who said, Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food and drink. That's what we are. And quite frankly, when I was having the conversation this last week with my neighbors, that was one of the things that they kept noting. They said, we've... We've heard this message before, but we've never heard it from a person who came across and, and communicated that they too were flawed. They said it's, uh, it's always somebody who's looking down on us who says these things. And, and so the Spirit of God, right, humbles us. And when we're humble and we communicate, we communicate in love, not as someone who's lording over, but rather as one beggar just simply saying to another beggar, hey, here's, here's where I found satisfaction. So be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit. Number two, be prepared to share your faith with people who are like you and those who are not. We've got an opportunity coming up for you to be equipped in this. Um, We're hosting a a training weekend September 8th through 10th at uh, Southeastern. It's not just for Southeastern students. This is for churches all over North Carolina and beyond. But the weekend is going to be Thursday night through Saturday night. And there's going to be equipping. It's not going to be talking head stuff. It's going to be people practicing stuff. And then we're actually going out into those pockets of lostness around the triangle. And going to be engaging people with the gospel. So you're not going to be sent out on your own. You'll be paired up with someone. And y'all will work together in order to share the gospel. We'll put the information for that conference on our website here at North Wake. So that you can uh, take advantage of that. But be prepared to share your faith. Number three, witnessing is most effective to people whose hearts have been prepared by God. And and just as a sub-note to this, don't argue. Don't argue with people. No one in the history of the world has ever won an argument. Because if you win the argument, you lose the person, right? And the person's the point, not the argument. 
So don't argue. You'll not argue someone into belief in Christ. Um, ask questions. Listen. That's what people want to know. Are, do you care about me? Are you listening to me? Do you hear me? Number four, start with gaining an understanding of the other person's circumstances and then listening to their questions. So again, just reiterating that we need to listen, not just speak all the time. Number five, scripture should be the basis of our message. That was the case here with Philip, right? He didn't just come off with some random presentation. He had a conversation with this man centered around scripture. And then number six, Christ is the hero of your story and of theirs. He made Christ the hero. He explained how Christ was the hero of that text of Scripture and how he could be the hero of his own life. The number seven, finally, always ask for a response. Um, you know, that's one thing that oftentimes is so difficult, asking somebody to respond to Jesus. But the reality is, if you're a, a follower of Christ, at some point you had to respond. It's not enough just to know the gospel. You have to obey the gospel through repentance and faith. And so what I want you to do is take that piece of paper that you were handed when you, were, uh, when you came in this morning. I'm going to show you a two-minute video that walks you through super quickly how you can have a conversation that centers on the gospel. And in this video, what I want you to do, it's just a little diagram on a napkin. I want you to draw that out on your uh, piece of paper that you receive. If you don't have a piece of paper and you've got one of these, there's an app for that. Um, it's called the Life Conversation Guide. And so you, we'll put the link for that on our website as well that will help you to be able to walk through this. So two minutes and then we'll close uh, right after that. So show the video, please. For the sake of brevity, I showed that as a video, and it comes across like a presentation. But this, this really is designed to have gospel-centered conversations. About three and a half, four months ago, I was at a baptism service for Oaks Church, one of our church plants in North Raleigh. There were, I think, eight people who were being baptized that day. 
one of them was a, a black man named Eric who um, had shared from the baptistry. What they do is when they're baptized, they share their testimony from the baptistry of how they came to faith in Christ. And he was sharing from there that a year and a half earlier, he had met Josh, the pastor of this church, while they were both coaching Little League basketball together. And so he was an opposing team coach. He watched Josh over the course of the season, the way he related to the kids, the way he related to his wife, the way um, he related to all the people who were there. And it intrigued him. And so he and Josh got into a conversation. They had a divine appointment. They met for coffee one morning, and he and Josh are sitting there, and Josh pulls out a napkin, and he draws out this diagram, asking questions, listening to the man. The man said, I never dreamed that I could have a conversation like this with a person who would really understand me. And when Josh finished that conversation, he asked the question, he says, which of these circles represents best where you are today in your life? And this man says, I'm in the broken circle. That's how you transition a conversation, right? Josh was able to walk him through the gospel as a result of that. And that morning, Eric put his faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, um, Josh made an appointment. He wanted to make sure that this guy understood what it was he was deciding. So he made an appointment for the next morning. Josh had taken that napkin with him from the coffee shop, or Eric had taken the napkin with him from the coffee shop. And when Josh called in to meet the next morning, Eric says, I can't meet. I'm sharing this with two of my coworkers. So he had just come to faith in Christ, and it was such a simple, reproducible message that he was able to share it with others. And as Eric stood in that baptistry on that day, he looked down and he says, I just want to tell you that as I'm following Christ, I'm also committing to lead and love my wife. I'm committing to, to, to uh, love and pursue my kids. And, and I'm committing to love this church body as well. God had done a work in his life. God can do a work in yours. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you think, all of this seems kind of secondhand. All of this is like I'm looking in from the outside. Perhaps uh, your circumstances are not the same as those of the eunuch, but you do feel like an outsider to this conversation. I would say to you simply this, that the message of the gospel that you've heard, that Christ died for your sin, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you, that in him you might know his righteousness, that God demonstrates his love for you, and that while you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, Christ died for us. That, that good news is enough. Knowing that and acting in obedience upon that by believing and trusting is enough to save you this morning and give you a new life uh, just as the Ethiopian experienced. For those of you who are North Wakers, I want to encourage you. I gave you that stat a minute ago about the, the research triangle, this whole area that we live in. Three out of four people probably are not going to come to church if you invite them. That means you've got to take the message to them. Um, and that means you need to be prepared for that. You need to be intentional. So here's what I want you to do. In addition to having drawn out that little diagram, I want you to think of one person that over the next seven days you're going to commit to share the message of the gospel, just a simple message of hope with that person. And I want you to write their name on that list. And when we pray in just a moment for the close of our service, I want you praying for that person that God would not only provide you the opportunity to share with them, but he would give you the boldness and spirit empowerment in order to, to offer hope to a person who, without the gospel, is hopeless. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we give thanks to you for your kindness to us. Thank you again for your word.